we're at the very beginning of this whole process. And this company, I believe, some of the investors are Michael Jordan, if I'm not mistaken. Some of the other prominent, current, and former professional players are part of the initial sort of investment in this. I think they valued it at like 2.4 billion initially, right? This was just maybe a couple of years ago, and now it's up to $10 billion, that's right. right? That's right. The SPAC kind of option is sort of interesting because I think they're essentially trying to go to a public market through this sort of you know vehicle, right? Which is another story, I would argue. Hi, everyone. You are in the game, a podcast bringing disruptive insights and analysis into the business of sports. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Thank you for giving us your time. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We hope to earn the right to be in your ears for a few minutes each week. This is Anand Punjabi coming to you from London, England. And this is Vladimir Bosanitz coming in from Seattle, Washington. We're delighted this week to welcome guest host John Kasher. Hi, John. Welcome. Great to be here. We're checking in from Chicago and uh, happy to be with you guys talking sports and business. It's good to have you, John. Folks, kick back and get ready to get in the game with us. Gentlemen, how are things? Things are good. I think, John, uh, I think, John you should tell us uh, how things have been with you. Things are great. I'm in Chicago, which means the city has been frozen for about three months, four months, with a <laughs> yes, sheet of ice and snow over it. But I'm as I look out the window, there is actual green grass that we can see. So life is good. Things are turning around. And John, remind me, but a couple of days ago, you actually went for an ice cream walk with your family. <laughs> did I did I remember that conversation correctly? You did. And <laughs> it was a great idea for about the first 200 yards of the walk until we got blasted with, you know, 30 degree wind chill on the way to get ice cream. And my, my kids were questioning my judgment and they really, they should have been, it was not my best decision of the week. Winter ice cream is the best. I think winter ice cream is the best. <laughs> there you go. Well, this weekend, gentlemen, this weekend, the NBA all-star game finally happened after all the sort of complaining, I guess, from some of the athletes and the league basically saying, hey, we're doing this. Uh, it's going to be a TV event. Let's all have fun. Uh, this thing happened. So thoughts? Uh, did you guys watch it? I did not watch it, no. I don't think they broadcast it in the UK. And if they did, it was probably at some odd and godly hour. And so I would not have, uh, I would not have stayed <laughs> yeah. up for that. You know, I did see it. I have young sons, so... NBA is a big part of our life and our yeah. family. Um, yeah, we watched it. They, I think they do a pretty good job with the event as, as all-star games go. It's an exhibition, but, you know, they do a pretty good job of featuring the players. And Yeah, I actually noticed, that, you know, for all the complaining that I think some of the players did, they seem to have had a lot of fun out there. I don't think I've ever seen, you know, LeBron with such like a genuine smile and laughter <laughs> right. and all the guys were just kind of doing some goofy stuff. The format was a little different. Instead of kind of, you know, spreading it over a few days, they compacted it essentially all on Sunday. So there was like a little bit of a, of a of like a skills challenge before the right. game. And then the the slam dunk competition was actually during during halftime. That's right, at halftime. Which is, which is so interesting. Could you say LeBron was smiling so much because he's the one who complained the most, right? If I'm not mistaken. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it's hard work. Anyway, and, and he even made a statement, I think, before the, the game saying like, oh, I'll be there in body but maybe not in spirit or so it was something like it's nice but anyway he, the kids he, like he was there in spirit he was he was there in spirit one of the interesting things uh for us and for our conversation was the winner of the slam dunk contest anthony simons from the trailblazers um 
He's a young player, 21 years old, and the announcers during the conversation said, you know, he is from IMG Academy, which is the the sports complex in Bradenton, Florida. I, I thought that was very interesting, and it kind of reminded me of LaMelo Ball and his also unusual kind of path into the um, into the league. Michael Jordan, speaking of LaMelo Ball, just recently also said that, you know, with the Charlotte Hornets, LaMelo has exceeded their expectations. And so my prediction a few months ago on this was that we're going to start seeing more players kind of go through these various different channels and paths to get to the professional, you know, ranks. And I think LaMelo is showing it can be done successfully. Certainly, Anthony Simons is showing it could be done successfully. And over the last few weeks, actually, incidentally, we've we've seen a few things uh, pop up. So, Anand, tell us about the one that you uh, just discovered recently. We heard about, well, you mentioned um, a number of new organizations popping up to guide high school basketball players to the pro leagues away from college. So I heard about this, uh, this organization called the Professional Collegiate League, the PCL. And they seem to have some okay. heavy hitters backing them right now. Uh, if you look at uh, both the exec team and the advisory board, you know, fairly experienced sports and business professionals, a couple of, I think a lawyer is the CEO, a former lawyer is the CEO. They've got some former NBA players on their advisory team. They seem to be taking this quite seriously. They are talking about paying these young kids uh, from fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to play in a competitive league every summer, yeah, and take college level courses throughout the year, which is interesting. So kind of moving them away from kind of that standard model of just going to college instead of college being your other thing. The other one that I heard of, and and you guys have seen this also, but Overtime Media, um, which is this kind of, I don't know what you call it, sort of a Gen Z kind of media organization that publishes a lot of videos around high school athletes, yeah, effectively, the clips, that's right? Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, they've done very, very well with that. Well, they've also announced, <laughs> incidentally, creation of something called Overtime Elite. So it sounds very similar to what you described, Anand. Except this is not focused on on teams as much as focused on sort of thirty individuals. They're going to pay them each a hundred grand, and I think they're going to take him kind of out of the out of the sort of pool, if you will, of uh, NCAA basketball, and essentially pay them to you know live in a city and quote unquote prepare for their professional life, if if you will. I'm a little skeptical of this model. I do think there are different paths. Like, you know, IMG is like a true sports academy. Uh, The NBA's G League, I think, is coming into more prominence as a really, really sort of valid path for some of these kids. And it looks like uh, just over over the last couple of days, one of the the top prospects of uh, high school ball, Imoni Bates out of of Michigan, who was going to go to Michigan State, undeclared himself for Michigan State and said he's going to the to the G League. And this is not too dissimilar from what baseball is doing, uh, hockey is doing, right? Do you guys think this is going to be really as prominent as I think it is? It's really interesting to see how it's played. Every major sport, every professional sport has its minor league, right? The NFL has college football, which ends up being kind of its de facto minor league. You have baseball that actually, and hockey that have, you know, structurally have their own minor leagues. But this is a very interesting development that in some ways seems inevitable that this would have happened. I mean, let's let's face yeah. it, the the reason we're here is the one and done rule. 
where kids straight out of high school need, you know, in theory, when it was developed, I think it was 2005, it was developed, the thinking behind it was, look, we don't want kids jumping from the high school to the NBA anymore. Right. So let's just right. create this rule where they have to go to college for a year because there were no other options. The reason for it, you know, I think it was was pretty clear at the time and through over the years, it's good for the NBA, right? Because you get the year of seasoning and it helps prop up the NCAA, which is, let's face it, the minor league at the time and for a while for the NBA. But as usual, not a lot of thought went into whether it was good for the actual kids who were graduating right. from high school right? and who may, God forbid, want to get fair market value for their skills and services that they bring to the table. Right. So- yeah, so it seems to me that these these new alternative routes to the league would come about in this era where people are starting to recognize that, look, no matter who you are, where you are, and what you do, if you bring something to the table, you should be paid for. There should be a way for you to do it and not necessarily through the old system. It just doesn't feel like a surprise to me that folks would be starting to capitalize on it and participate yeah. in it and make it happen. Well, 2005 yeah. was a long time ago, and this was before the era of social media and before really the big commercialization of the internet today. Individuals are their own brands. So when you know a high school athlete has two, three, four, five hundred thousand followers on social media, they recognize themselves perhaps that they can monetize some of that. And there are plenty of agencies out there who are going to help them do that. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And and this is interesting that these two are popping up right at the sort of onset of, uh, of the whole NIL change, mm-hmm. right, which is happening July 1st of this year. But, you know, it is interesting. And I, I do suspect that we will see more kids coming out of IMG, more kids going to Europe, maybe Australia, New Zealand, like some other players have. And I do think that there will be more paths to the to the professional ranks than uh, perhaps there there were in history. So yeah, all kind of interesting. So we'll keep our eye on that. Well, I have another one for you guys. Speaking of figuring out what to do here and and how to making decisions based on the data here, you know, you remember? Let's go back to last last summer and last fall when we were all trying to figure out exactly what the pandemic was going to bring to especially university settings and how to handle that the process of rolling out sports, whether sports should be played at the college level, at the high school level, even the professional level. And there are a lot of decisions being made very quickly and different folks were looking at different data and different different science conclusions and, and making decisions. Or not, or not looking at data and science. <laughs> <laughs> or just using the science is maybe a better yeah. word to make the decision they were going to make anyway. But the Big Ten was one of those that was really on the, you know, on the forefront because of really how they vacillated you guys remember probably how sure yeah they were they were one of the first schools to come out and say too early to play football let's play in the spring right right and you know meanwhile the SEC and the ACC came out and said you know football can be played safely surprise surprise <laughs> we're <laughs> right. going to we're going to go through the football season and we're going to make it happen and the Big 10 and it's you know through its fans and a lot of its players and and member institutions were really criticized as a conference organization for making that yeah. call. What they, you remember what they did then? They they finally ultimately said, okay, we changed our mind. 
it is safe to play football in the fall, just not early in the fall. If we play in the middle <laughs> right. of the fall, then it's going to be safe. So that we, they had a football season that started. I think it was like after things, uh, sorry, after Halloween, right? Was was kind of where it, when it kicked off. It was right around that time. And, yeah. and, it, and it did yeah. dovetail okay into the rest of the folks who were playing football. So we ended up with a national championship you know, playoff that worked. Yeah. Not shocking that the, that the cash cow was protected in that situation. But so there were a lot of heated, interesting decisions that were made behind the scenes very privately at the Big Ten level, except that the Washington Post big story this week got involved, made some records requests, uh, the dreaded records request initiative through various states for the state institutions, asking for their communications, emails, transcripts of phone calls and that kind of stuff. What do you yeah. think prompted yeah. them to do that? Is that the first time uh, such a request has been made? Why, why do you think they decided to try and find out what was going on? Or they suspected something untoward was going on? It's a great question. And uh, there's a little bit of reporting on that, that the part of the reason was, you know, this is such a high profile story that the Post had had tried to get some of that information along the way. And it just was, was stonewalled, in particular by the University of Nebraska, which just said, we don't have those records. We don't have it. Sorry. Move on. Move along. Nothing to see here. <laughs> So they yeah. went they went more formally through different states and made those requests and they were successful in some cases and not in others which actually makes it very interesting as well to see what some folks turn over and what others say isn't there. So really great question and and it's you know here we are what we ended up with is Washington Post reporting and they were able to access a good number of the state universities Northwestern of course was as a private university could just sit back in the corner fold their arms and say, you know, this is none of your business. And So they're the ones that didn't share the information, sounds like. They did not share the information. Yeah. What what happens at Northwestern stays at Northwestern, evidently. <laughs> so that's where we're sitting. But, you know, what we found out was that there's this thing called the Big Ten Portal, which is what the universities thought was a private communication portal service and board, message board, where they could communicate and be outside the, the scope of the laws. And turns out that that was a it was a very incorrect conclusion and a terrible mistake, wrong in the law and wrong in, in a lot of respects. So what we ended up with was, and there's more to come in this area, I think, as, as we get more information and, and materials. Why do you need a secret portal, which is sort of maybe the number one question? Like, is this... That's right. Like, what, what else is communicated through this portal, right? It kind of begs the question of... Uh, why do they have to hide these decisions if they're really looking to the best interest of their employees and athletes and all of that kind of stuff, right? You would think. You would think, right? I mean, especially when it comes to the conversations about how to deal with the pandemic. Right. You think, you know, right. look, this is science and this is not opinions, this is science, but yeah. But here we are. And I think that, you know, you guys probably remember, you know, there's famously Donald Trump called Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren and advocated for a return to football. Yes. And, uh, you know, claimed credit. <laughs> Was that for in the a Big portal Ten. too? <laughs> <laughs> there is probably some stuff in the portal that we just don't need to see. But what we did see was the Wisconsin president was on some of her emails came to. Okay. Came to light. You're, and this is going to sound like I'm making these up, but I'm not. <laughs> one, one, she said, reminding the member, you know, her her counterparts at other universities, please note that anything that arrives in or is sent from my email can be requested as a public record. And I'm sitting here, you know, reading that quote. So it is very public. And she was very right about that. My favorite, though, is she um, sent a, again, not making this up, directly from the Washington Post. She sent an email to her assistant named Becky 
quote, Becky, if you simply delete emails after sending, does that relieve you of FOIA obligations? FOIA being the record request kind of right, uh, regime. Right, 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 right. Turns out the answer is no. Again, President Blank, I'm reading, I'm reading it. So that just didn't happen. See, this is why they need a portal. Because if you have to send an email to ask a question about whether this is questionable, tells you that you probably need some <laughs> yeah. kind of private messaging system uh, because you're going right. to you, you don't understand how email works. You don't want to say is this email safe <laughs> by email. You, you yeah. can say that on the get phone. Get on Signal. Get on Signal instead. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, we're kind of joking about this, but from a operational point of view, I mean, it's you know, obviously this shows the one clear thing here, which is you know, these schools, uh, you know. Again, doing this in self-interest, keeping this sort of secret communication between each other. I mean, they're trying to coordinate, obviously, you know, how to keep the season going. And they're trying to feel one another out, I, I guess, is maybe the best way to mm-hmm. to sort of see this. I would be a little bit concerned, obviously, as as I was during this time that, that this was happening. But it's a business, and I think there should be no uh, no kind of other ways of trying to describe their interests other than those in focused on you know making revenue. That's so right, and I think it really illustrates that point. I mean, when you say self interest, Vlad, I mean I think that's that's really the my main takeaway here, which is you know schools do act in their own self interest and are always going to protect their interests and what they want to push to make happen, what they want to see happen. Conferences serve a great purpose in college sports for the schools. I mean, they they can negotiate TV contracts and other revenue generating contracts collectively and maximize value that way. Scheduling and, you know, branding and traditions. And there's a, a lot of things that you can measure that create value for them. But the reality is that each school is going to focus on its own self-interest and they will always do that. And I think that'll become really relevant as we see schools focusing on fighting the fight on name, image, and likeness and that kind of thing and uh, moving into the future, whether they can fight as a team or as a bunch of individuals. That's true. That's true. John, that was uh, that was interesting. Uh, wow. Portal. What a thing these colleges do. Anyway, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Sport Radar, a company that is apparently going public. It's an analytics company based out of Switzerland with some heavy investors from uh, the U.S., but also big, big league clients, too. So interesting to see how that's all evolving. And we'll be here in just a minute. Hey, everyone, it's Anand from the In The Game podcast. First of all, on behalf of Vlad and the team, thank you for taking the time to listen each week. We know your time is valuable, and we're grateful that you choose to spend some of it with us. We really hope you find it worthwhile. We'll continue to do our best to provide you with compelling stories and disruptive analysis from the world of sports business. Now we'd like to ask you a favor. If you like the show, please share a link with your friends, colleagues, and fellow sports lovers. Tell them that they need to get in the game too. And of course, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate your five-star rating and review. From your podcast app, just tap on the In The Game cover art, scroll down, and tap on Write A Review. Believe it or not, this little gesture really helps. Thank you all so much, and now it's time to get back in the game. Welcome back. So we've uh, spent time talking about data analytics and 
intelligence and its growing influence in the sports industry, both on a league level and on a team level. How important data is becoming may start to become even more apparent with this new story that uh, has come up this week. We have an organization out of Switzerland, as Vlad mentioned earlier, called Sport Radar. There is a blank check firm uh, here in the U.S. called Horizon Acquisition Corp. that has apparently signed a letter of intent by way of a SPAC, SPAC being the hot acquisition uh, vehicle of choice in this last few months. Another another SPAC story here. <laughs> but this is this is serious money. They are valuing apparently yeah. this data company out of Switzerland at ten billion dollars. So who is Sport? Who is Sport Radar? This is what we're trying to figure out. They describe their mission statement as to empower the broadest range of businesses with state-of-the-art sports data and digital content solutions that fuel the passion of sports fans across the globe. They do a lot of different things, so it's kind of hard to put into a nutshell exactly what it is that they do, but I will try. From my understanding, they take data and content from hundreds of thousands of different sources and convert that into something valuable and engaging. This is sports data feeds from events, live events all around the world. We're talking 30-plus sports, including esports. They provide complete data strategies for teams and leagues. Apparently, they run uh, Juventus, Italian football team's entire online offering. They create digital video. They create audio content. They distribute media rights, uh, highlights, clips, live content. And they have this very substantial service offering just for the sports betting industry. They are effectively a one-stop shop, complete turnkey solution uh, for those who are already participating in the sports betting industry or wish to participate. Huge range of services, many thousands of employees, many data scientists, and uh, it looks like they've sold their soul or someone values them at a very, very <laughs> big valuation, $10 billion, seems to be the largest one. Well, so far, so far, right? We we were looking at their client base. It looks pretty impressive. It does. It's interesting to me, especially who's back in this and why. I mean, when you said uh, and uh, the bet radar folks being involved. Um, you know, I think that's just to me, I mean, that really stuck out to me as another example of sports books becoming smarter, becoming more agile. I mean, we know why the leagues would be interested in getting a hold of using services like this and and essentially doing a better job of of mining their own data and monetizing their data in a way that they haven't done. It's essentially their own intellectual property. But this is an example of sport books becoming smarter and more agile in, in this space. I mean, it it seems so long ago now that it was, a, you know, you picture a bookie hanging out on a porch, hanging up, uh, you know, a simple betting line of, you know, Cowboys by seven over the Packers or something like that and scribbling it on a notepad. This is now very real, very big business, obviously. And I think, I feel like the U.S. is really kind of still catching up with yeah. at least parts of Europe on that. And it's interesting just to sort of Take a step back here. So Anand, uh, so Sport Radar is the sports analytics, if you will, portion that sells, if you will, to media companies and the sports teams, right? And then there's the betting portion of that data, right? That that goes into some other kind of you know database that that apparently they can sell to, I guess, casinos and other places like that. 
kind of has a two-pronged strategy in terms of what this data is used for, well, I right? think they have a multi-pronged strategy. Or multi right. That's probably a better way to, to, to If you look at their that, client yeah. base, let's put the betting aside for just a second. The current client roster really reads like a who's who of major sporting leagues and teams. They've got yep. the big four mm -hmm. in the US. They've got the NFL, they've got the, they've got the NBA, they've got Major League Baseball, and they've got NHL, okay? Now in soccer, the largest sport globally, uh, they have FIFA signed up. They have the Russian uh, Premier League signed up. They've okay. got Juventus. Okay. In tennis, the ITF have stand up, uh, signed up, I should say. And then they've got the largest um, okay. esports league, the Electronic Sports League, the ESL. They're also on board. So yeah. you're talking about millions of data points here that they are identifying, then they are massaging this data, they are reorganizing it, and then they're presenting it back to the leagues and the teams in a, in a valuable and usable format. So that's just the data right there. Yeah, what's becoming very obvious to me is that you know sports is not becoming an entertainment thing that you just sort of sit back and watch anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Most of these teams are trying to interact with you now. The leagues are trying to interact with you on a, you know, on a very sort of personal basis, if you will, whether it's live or whether it's sort of, you know, off times, right? That is probably going to evolve into, you know, betting and gambling and, you know, those those kinds of things, right? Which will be sort of, you know, both live and kind of off uh, off time, if you will. But yeah, like, like John said, you know, this is just kind of, we're at the very beginning of this whole process. And this company, I believe, some of the investors are Michael Jordan, if I'm not mistaken. I, I believe some of the other prominent current and former professional players are part of the initial sort of investment in this. I think they valued it at like 2.4 billion initially, right? This was just maybe a couple of years ago and that's up to $10 billion, that's right. right? That's right. The SPAC kind of option is sort of interesting because I think they're, you know, essentially trying to go to a public market through through this sort of, you know, vehicle, right? Which is which is another story, I would argue. But the interesting part here is that how big this is going to be, right? And where this is going to take sports in general right. and how it's transforming, not just how we watch it, but how we interact with teams, with leagues, and also becomes a very different sort of uh, source of revenue for these teams and for these leagues, and in some cases, even for the athletes, right? You've seen, you've seen when you get on a website, for example, I'll take tennis as an example. You'll be on some tournament website and you'll see the score tracker, right? You'll see the the point-by-point graphic display, you know, Federer serving against Nadal. You might see a visual of a ball going back and forth. You will see the number yeah. of aces that Nadal has hit. This is all being run by a company like Sport Radar, at least for the ITF tournaments. Yep. Yep. This is kind of the machine behind some of the stuff that the consumer sees. This is just one small element of it when you talk about how we are going to interact with watching a game. Even the stats that we see when we're watching a live game on TV right? These are the types of organizations that are going to continue to provide more and more interesting, more and more intricate data points that we may find interesting, that we may find useful. Yeah. yeah. This is to say nothing of betting. I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even starting on that. Well, well, and that's, that's where I was going to go next. I mean, this also feeds right into the live kind of updating of the odds, yes. right? As things mm -hmm. are evolving, right? So but they are providing a live odds service for Yeah. If you if you miss a free throw, your odds now all of a sudden change. If you make a free throw, the odds are changing in real time. This is this is all happening That's today, right. correct? Exactly right. Yeah. They're they're 
most of, you know, the, in a lot of these sports books are making headway in the U S and different, you know, states are starting to open their doors to that kind of thing. And that's where, you know, the pregame betting is kind of the old era, right? The in-game betting, like even while you're sitting watching the game on TV, you know, the odds will literally change. Like you said, based on a missed free throw or based on, you know, an incomplete pass. Now you suddenly have different odds and these guys are helping, you know, books fine tune those kind of And it's the same data, right? They are just using the data in a different way and presenting it in a in a new market. Interestingly though, one point I do want to make, I'm not passing judgment now on whether betting is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, we're just making a very um, <laughs> you know very a very neutral a neutral argument here how this organization is using um, you know the data points that are coming their way. They are also have a a strategy and policy unit. Okay. So this involves interesting yeah and also like a due diligence and risk and compliance unit so they are also looking to track for example due diligence on the financial aspects of organizations uh, organizational structure you know are, are the mm-hmm. owners um, do they have a history of of doing deals that they shouldn't have done they also have a anti-doping unit they have a fraud unit so Ironically, even though they have a unit that is providing a whole structure for the betting industry, they are also looking at suspicious activities within a sport <laughs> that shouldn't be happening. They're going to take all the fun out of it. Our players, can, can you see a player throwing, throwing, throwing a game? You know, does a tennis player serve six double ports? Yeah, they'll sort of value the probability of a match being fixed based on some, you know, data points and mm-hmm. stuff, right? That that is very interesting. Though the whole kind of policy aspect of it is also pretty interesting too, because I guess they can they can show you a you know monetary path towards one decision or you know the other, which I think in in this case could be very dangerous because uh, <laughs> it's going to go towards a maximization, you know, to to you know maximizing of you know revenue either either way. But that is an interesting thing. So let me ask you guys this. I mean, the maybe the obvious question here is if this company does go public through this SPAC, like it like it says that it that yep. it might that the story says. I think Sportico was the one that broke this story. That's right. So this is uh, the name of the company that's that's quote unquote buying them is Horizon Acquisition Corp. Two, right? So I guess that'll be the public company that'll be that'll be you know traded. Is this something worthwhile investing in at this point? I mean, it sounds like these guys are pretty big. I am no SPAC specialist, and I you know SPAC lover. I might be if I can get a piece of the action in some of these packs. I'm actually trying to get in with the Welsh soccer team we talked about last week with uh, Ryan Reynolds there because they used a SPAC for Wrexham. So (laughs) I want to start small. I'm going to start at the $2 million level as opposed to the $10 billion level. I just think the number is remarkable. $10 billion for, you know, a data unit. It just shows how highly valued the whole function of intelligence and data is now for the sports industry. Yeah, and I think it's only going to increase more because I think we are going to see more, you know more interaction here. I think the teams, the leagues are all going to rely on odds and sort of other things to increase revenue for themselves as well. And I think anything that sort of helps them with the with 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 the information and also even the media companies and we we haven't even touched upon that. I mean, if you can provide a commentator sort of a live feed of data about a certain player or a certain play or a certain team, in a way, that enhances their commentary also, right? Where it's not just them watching and reacting to it, but they can actually put context to 
kind of what this means for the for the you know bigger picture of either that game or what's happening in the playoffs or stuff like right. that, right? It almost kind of reminds me of the world uh, tour of, you know, poker, you know, when they show the cards, the odds are calculated immediately. You know, what are the odds of this player winning the, the you know, the hand? And I, and I feel right. like it's something like that almost, right? It's, it's, it's so interesting. You know, it's just another example of thinking about data. Once data is mined and once data is able to be aggregated and even spliced out, how do you, how is that monetized and able to monetize things that, not too long ago, we couldn't even imagine. Like, for example, you know, Vlad, your missed free throw example to a sports book, to an online sports book that offers in game live odds that is extremely profitable to be able to offer that service and to be able to do it in a, you know, in an, intel- an intelligent way, they need to be able to use that missed free throw yeah. uh, to benefit yeah. them. So, so who owns that missed free throw, right? Like, what is that missed free throw worth and who's it worth to? It, there's all very interesting, you know, questions because people are making money off that missed free throw. Yeah. Don't be surprised if they launch an NFT unit very soon because they will have, uh, with the <laughs> amount of data that they have. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We should all be launching NFT units. Is is what I've yeah. taken away. With that, we are going to go into overtime. We have something pretty interesting that uh, maybe we've all experienced once in a while, being thrown out of a hotel, you know, wild rock and roll parties, that type of thing. John, why don't, uh, why don't you tell us what we've got here? Speak for yourself, Anand. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. Well, listen, I've been trying to be more grateful in my life. I think it's more positive mental space for me to be in. And so when I, when I look at this story, which is my favorite story of the week, I love all our stories, but this story... It makes me think about, you know, next time I'm in a hotel room and I'm, I'm out of towels or I'm in, stuck in a noisy room by the elevator or something like that, I need to remember to be grateful because it can always be worse. And one way it can be worse, for example, is to be a professional hockey player that's trying to take a nap and is finds himself getting a call from the traveling secretary who tells him that it's time to pack your stuff up because this hotel is filed for bankruptcy and we've been kicked out. And that's exactly what happened to the Las Vegas Golden Knights on Friday. Uh, they were in San Jose at the Fairmont Hotel getting ready for their, their game Friday evening. They, they had had their morning skate. Everything was going great. They returned to the hotel for their pregame meal, went back to their rooms, literally were going to take their pregame nap. And they got a message from their team services guy saying, pack your bags. It's time to go. Wow. That's... Hey, better than a flood from the bathroom above, I suppose, right? A lot of things can happen in a hotel. We've all we've all been there. You know, I've had I've had I've been interrupted. I've had naps wrecked a lot of times in my life. But I'll I'll tell you, it's usually involved a screaming toddler and not a corporate bankruptcy filing. <laughs> but that's what happened here. Is it Fairmont? Not at a Fairmont either, right? At Fairmont, the Fairmont San Jose. <laughs> Fairmont files that are shutting down, and it's time to go. It did have. I don't know if you guys caught this though. It did have a. A good ending for the the Knights. Maybe they're on to something because they jumped out quickly to a three goal lead that night. Oh, nice against the San Jose Sharks, and they ended up winning five four in overtime. So, wow, well, maybe that's what they needed. Well, to wrap the story up, there's another sports angle to the story. The Fairmont in San Jose is actually owned by a company. Um, 
that is led by Lou Wolf, and Lou Wolf is the owner of the athletic of the Oakland Oakland A's, the Oakland Athletics, mm-hmm. and the San Jose uh, Earthquakes, the soccer the soccer club there. So, kind of interesting sports tie in all around. There you go. Thanks, John. Thanks, Anand. Uh, listeners, thank you for your time. We know that if you're listening to the show, you know how to subscribe to podcasts. So hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends and your family about us. And if you'd like to get in touch, please connect with us. Our contact information is in the show notes. John, Anand, good game. Great game, Vlad. Folks, thanks for listening. And don't forget, if you're on Apple Podcasts, be sure to write us a review. Bye, John. Take care. Great to be here. Great to be with you guys. <laughs>